the magnificent specimen. He loped down the stairs, pushed through the front door and stepped out onto the chilly pavement. It was invigorating against his freshly shaved and bathed face. His mind was eagerly racing ahead to work as he strode down the road, his hair fluttering a little and his coat rippling out behind him. He was young and fit and brimful of energy and he had no idea what a magnificent specimen of youth and vigour he presented. His long athletic strides carried him swiftly down the street and over the crossings towards his workplace. His thoughts were there already and his movements, confident and assured, were really on autopilot. But the continuum of his thoughts was momentarily snapped. He barreled forward without breaking a stride, but his brow wrinkled and his dark eyes became sharp and doubtful at the same time. Something had intruded into his awareness. Something had rung a bell. What was it? Matching action to thought, he turned on his heel with grace and fluidity and retraced his steps. His eyes scanned the streets. What had alerted him? It came to him before he even reached the spot. The old man. The fixture, that's what he called him at any rate. He hadn't been at his usual spot. They had a casual acquaintance. Occasionally he dropped him some cash or clothes, once an old coat which had earned him a grateful nod. He was always there at his spot, always. But not today. His eyes confirmed what he'd sensed already. He'd been there the night before. He knew that because he'd dropped some money in his cup. Enough for a hot meal. It had been a bitterly cold night. The newspaper vendor confirmed it. The fixture had died overnight. The cops had taken him away early in the morning. All of us have to go sometime and the old codger's life hadn't exactly been a splendiferous one. And with that brief eulogy, the vendor busied himself with his papers again. The same young man, the same street, the same cold crispness of the morning, and yet nothing was the same. All the bounce and eagerness was gone and his footsteps were dogged and contemplative. Impulsively, he flipped out his phone and called in to work. An emergency had cropped up. He would come in if he could, but he was certain to be delayed. The cops weren't helpful. He was just another homeless fellow. He'd been no trouble, never scaring the kids or getting drunk and disorderly or anything of that sort. But he was nobody, had no friends or known family. They had a name, nothing more. And evidently, they couldn't care less. They kept repeating they would take care of everything and that he should get on to work. Please, sir. And eventually, that's what he did. He knew they had due process and that it would take time. So he just dropped in briefly every day to check if there was anything new. It was like the picture askew on the wall. 
Once he had seen it, he could not walk away. He had to set it straight. The cops reluctantly accepted him and his regular inquiries. After dozens of daily drop-ins at the police station, one day they told him that the funeral would be the next morning at 7.30. Briefish, at state expense, but he could attend if he wanted. He put up a sign at the fixture's old spot. It gave the details for the next day. He didn't really hold out much hope, but just in case. He'd been at that spot forever after all. Surely many would remember him. He got there a little early, but there were already a few people standing around and by 7.30 there were at least a dozen. There were flowers and a wreath. They all shook his hand before they left and some looked deep into his eyes. It was awkward. It wasn't as if he'd known the fixture personally, but he was glad they'd come. No one's departure should be so unheralded and unmourned. He made it a point to thank the cops and was amongst the last to leave himself. At last, he felt satisfied and he strode out onto the street, contentedly making his way to work. His hair fluttered a little and his coat rippled out behind him. He was young and fit and brimful of energy and he had no idea what a magnificent specimen he truly was. into silent sadness. Losing a family member is always traumatic, but losing a young one in the full flower of his youth was unbearable. Feroz had been the fulcrum of this household and with him gone, it didn't know how to turn. But the gloom was disrupted when Aftab walked in out of the night carrying a bundle a very obviously human bundle. He placed it on a mattress and everyone gathered around. It was a young girl, perhaps wounded, with dried blood on her clothes, emaciated, unknown, unconscious and more dead than alive. Aftab said he'd stumbled over her inert form on the darkening hillside. He couldn't have left her there. She wouldn't have made it through the night and he wouldn't have that on his conscience even though she was a stranger and strangers weren't welcome in this corner of the world. Salima and Ammi washed the young girl, combed her tangled hair and dressed her in fresh garments. They discovered a big bump on her head but no cuts anywhere for all that her robes had indeed been bloodstained. Apparently, not her own blood which was ominous, but not alarming, for in her current condition, she couldn't have fought her way out of a paper bag. 
They kept her warm and hoped for the best. Medical help was too far away. Ammi prayed her beads over the girl and fed her teaspoons of warm, spiced tea every half hour. She'd pour the tea carefully into the back of her mouth, holding her up in her capacious lap to be sure it didn't choke her. Her breathing remained regular and her rail-like chest rose and fell with gratifying consistency. The whole night, Ammi sat on duty. The next morning, Ammi greeted Salima with a happy face. In the still dark and cold, Salima scooted to her mother-in-law's side. They grinned at each other. Her eyelids were fluttering and there was a faint redness in her cheeks. Ammi whispered that she was swallowing on her own too. Aftab, personally invested in her return to life, came over to take a look and left with a small smile. His first since they'd found Feroz. Alia and Shan rubbed her hands in their tiny ones. And when a shaky groan issued from the girl, there were actually cheers. It took the rest of the day with many more spoonfuls of tea. But she finally awoke, opened her eyes slowly and hesitantly and was instantly frightened into a terrified ball to see them all hovering over her. Ami shooed them all away and calmed her. She explained how Aftab had found her and how they'd nursed her and that she was safe. It was remarkable how this young girl had been accepted into this home. In this dangerous and unpredictable land, instead of fearing for themselves as they always did with strangers, their fear and concern was solely for her. She couldn't remember her name, so they named her Naina for the big eyes which filled her face. In fact, she couldn't remember anything. Not how she came to be there, or where her home was, or who her family were. It alarmed Aftab, and he was watchful and suspicious. But soon his fears were allayed. Her eyes were always darting, seeking verification, looking for meaning. It wasn't something that could be faked. Over the next few days, her strength revived and she started helping Salima with the housework. She was dutiful to Abu and infinitely grateful to Aftab, his every wish fulfilled before he could even express it. But she was closest to Ammi, who whispered stories of the family to her, of the years they'd lived here, of her daughter who was married and settled in a faraway village and of the devastating loss of Feroz. There'd been gunshots and all had taken shelter indoors except Feroz and they'd prayed and prayed he'd be safe. As soon as they could, Aftab and Salima had gone looking for him and their terrible discovery that he'd been shot possibly by a stray bullet, and had long been beyond the help of prayers. They'd learned that one militant group had attacked another, and their beloved child had been the only victim, and their loss eternal. Nena cried over this sadness, and joined in their prayers for his soul. In fact, she became his caretaker, so to speak. 
They were too distressed to attend to his things and they'd been gathering dust in his corner of the small house. No longer. She cleaned and arranged his few possessions to create a shrine to Feroz and nothing could have endeared her more surely to their affections. In all this time though, she'd not remembered a single thing of her own past. It was a blank slate. She spent the day helping Salima or the kids, tending to Ammi and Abbu and anticipating Aftab's requirements. At night, she retired to her narrow bit of matting next to Ammi and slept fitfully, fidgeting and jumping all through the night. But whatever was disturbing her sleep didn't make its way into her conscious mind. Ami encouraged her to let it go. It was probably better lost if her mind didn't want to recover it. Nena prayed at the Feroz shrine that he'd guide her to remembrance. But he hadn't shown any inclination to help. This situation continued for months and she was now so much a part of the family that Aftab was beginning to think about her marriage. He'd have at best a few years to prepare for it financially and getting a son married was quite different from getting a daughter married. He'd noticed she'd whittled some fine toys for Alia and Shan, so he encouraged her to develop that skill. And eager to please him, she'd been working hard at it. She graduated rapidly from toys to indescribable things that were nevertheless beautiful. Aftab took a few into the city directly to a crafts shop and was astounded at the price he was offered. Nena was delighted. She'd needed some special way to express her thanks and money was always welcome. She continued all her domestic chores and her devotions at the Feroz shrine. But as soon as she could, she'd go looking for interesting shapes of wood and was often seen whittling away or sanding them down with smooth stones from the stream. She was happy, in a way, and so were they all. All this played out during a particularly peaceful period in the area. The last bit of trouble was the one that had snatched Feroz and deposited her into their hands a few days later. Sunsets and sunrises followed each other with dependable regularity and life settled into an easy rhythm. But it was too good to last, of course. And one day, gunshots rang like thunder across the mountains. The kids ran indoors instantly and everything was shuttered up when Ami noticed that Nena was missing. Panic. Too many horrid memories of Feroz's similar absence. Ami was determined to go out looking for her and wrenched herself out of Salima's restraining grip and cautioned Aftab not to stop her. But as she inched open the door, she saw Nena sitting at her usual spot below the rocky overhang. She wasn't bent at her work, but sat bolt upright, her eyes far away in the mountains and heavy with unshed tears. She seemed not to hear Ami calling, so Ami crept out to her. Salima and Afta peered through the open door. Nena woke from her trance as Ami's arms surrounded her and let out an agonized wail of misery. Ami petted and stroked her, but she sobbed inconsolably 
and finally aftab just picked her up as before and carried her inside with the two women scuttling behind him as soon as he put her down she shuffled to the feroz shrine and thumped her head repeatedly on the ground in front of it wailing the kids huddled in a corner they'd never seen nana like this ammi embraced her and petted her patiently but nana was beyond consolation sometimes she settled down to whimpers but something would start her off again and the little house resounded with her grief she stayed in front of the shrine right through the night weeping and issuing muted moans the next morning silence had returned to the mountains outside nana helped salima and tended to the elders and kids when everything was done she wept again in front of the shrine then stood up and approached aftab very formally he patted a seat beside him but she shook her head and preferred to stand all eyes were on them she thanked him for the infinite kindness he and his family had shown her and she begged their forgiveness but she must leave gasps echoed in the room and ammi collapsed in a heap of tears aftab was on his feet asking what they'd done to give offense but nena cried it is never you none of you ever it is i then she clamped her mouth and wouldn't say another word except that she begged their forgiveness and she must go they all tried to change her mind but she was resolute hours passed and darkness descended and ammi said whatever else she must stay the night hoping that a new day would bring a change of heart but it didn't and after completing her chores she presented herself to aftab again and this time they knew they'd have to give in there were tears more so when nena refused food for her journey and realization dawned that she hadn't touched food or water since the whole outdoor fiasco nena was weeping too as she threw herself one last time in front of the feroz shrine ammi lifted her up with surprisingly strong arms placed her wrinkled hands on nena's firm cheeks and looking fiercely from her own tear-filled eyes to nena's she said i forgave you a long time ago child remember that i forgave you and my blessings will always be with you and i will pray for your safety every day there will always be a home for you here no matter what you do or have done do you understand future and past do you hear me nena wept harder still she paid her respects formally to every member of the family including the little ones and with a last whimpering look at her shrine she walked out the door with only the clothes on her back a curtain of gloom descended on the house again night came and then morning ammi pitched in to help salima and when they were done and sitting emptily around salima asked ammi why did you say you'd forgiven her ammi she'd done us no wrong except in leaving so suddenly ammi covered her face with her hands and wept as salima cost herself for bringing up the topic she summoned alia and shan to recite their lessons aloud 
and somehow the meltdown was averted. But Aftab's suspicions had been raised. Later that evening, when the children had turned in, he confronted his mother gently. You must say why, Ami. What did you forgive her for? Ami held his strong hands in her gnarled old ones and looked up into his pale face. She didn't know the wrong she did, son. They must have filled her head with nonsense from the time she was a baby. But I saw the very first day and I knew. What did you know, Ami? He prodded gently. But the dawning knowledge was on his face too. She bent down and kissed his hard hands with her puckered old lips. I saw her expertly handling an imaginary rifle when she was unconscious. Forgive her son, for you saw her horror when her memory returned and she realized what she'd done. She couldn't bear to face our love. She never touched a morsel of food or water in our house after that. How terrible must be her regret. Her tears dropped hotly on their joined hands. Abu's fingers clicked over his beads, echoing loudly in the silence. Salima approached cautiously. She suspected awful things that she couldn't even give words to. Her eyes flicked from her husband to her mother-in-law, both toughened by the cruel ways of the world, but both melted by their powerful feelings for a young stranger who'd appeared unaccountably in their lives. Aftab reached out for Salima with one hand and embraced his mother with the other, and the three leant together and wept more freely than they had in months. Inevitably, they turned to the little shrine Nena had so lovingly created and tended for a boy she never knew, never knowing why she felt so linked to him or why she was compelled to memorialize him. Salima was shuddering with her grief, but found the strength to somehow whisper, His life is forever lost to this meaningless violence. But we saved hers from being submerged and lost in it too. We must be content with that. Lion-hearted. Fred walked into the college canteen, swirling a long, furled-up black umbrella in lazy circles, and everyone fell upon him. He was such a showboat. But this was melodramatic even by his standards. Guys, 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 Fred pacified them. It is not mine own. I discovered it. Which earned him another blast of scornful remarks. One did not discover umbrellas as if they were a new breed of butterfly. 
And if one did, one did not just waltz off with them. Ever the drama queen, Fred waved his hand at one of the naysayers. You must learn to abide your soul in patience, he chided her, explaining that he'd asked around, trying to locate its owner, to no avail. Why didn't he just leave it where he'd discovered it, someone asked him. With a view to discovering its ownership, I examined it, meticulously. But there was no indication. The jeers started again. Can a man have a minute, you unruly rabble, he cried, hoisted himself up on a chair for better vantage and bowed histrionically to the sound of new hoots. I opened it and saw that there was a return to sender message taped high up on the handle. So I have acquired it only temporarily with a view to return it to its rightful owner. You ass, Fred, was the general tenor of the remarks flung at him as everyone returned to their activities. Who will accompany me on my mission to return this estimable object into the safe hands of Mr. Bob Mackey of 2 Motabhai Manor, White's Lane, Fred asked. Oi, yelped Tara, one hand covering her mouth as she chewed and swallowed rapidly. Did you say Bob Mackey? Is that his umbrella? That's a strange coincidence. You know him? Fred asked, his brows beetling as he peered down at her suspiciously from his exalted position. All eyes turned to Tara. I found his driving license last week. I returned it and the old man admitted he didn't drive anymore but liked to keep it as ID. He invited me in for a drink, gave me a beer, which remark was greeted with an appreciative hum and a long whistle. Everyone followed the sound of the whistle and RK received their stares as he drummed his long fingers on his moustache. My mum told me, he enunciated slowly, that she returned a wallet, found it at the supermarket, didn't have much money but had an old letter tucked inside, so she delivered it to that address. Was an old man, as you say, Tara. He invited her in and offered her a beer. He seemed lonely, she said. He already had his phone out and was making a call. Every eye and ear in the canteen was on him as he reminded his mum about the incident. On Fred's prompt, he asked, Was it a Bob Mackie? And they read her answer on his face. Tara mumbled sadly, I thought he was lonely too. Kept me talking a good half hour and plied me with beer. I've thought about him off and on, but haven't made the time to go. She looked shamefaced. The canteen emptied out, with everyone wandering off to their classes now that the mystery was solved. Only Fred, Tara, RK and Jay remained, and Pinky, dragging a reluctant Leo with her. Fred hopped off his perch and they congregated around RK, his long fingers now drumming slowly on the table. Pinky sighed. It's such a sad story. A lonely old man, carefully including his address in possessions, he drops all over the city, 
hoping someone will return them and stay for a chat. We should do something. She looked at Leo, but he was shaking his head. You guys are too idealistic. Return the bloody umbrella, Fred. Have a beer or two if you want. Chat a while. Then forget about the old bugger. What are you going to do? Solve the whole world's problems? We've got enough of our own with the exams not far off. Do you really want to nursemaid an old man? Dribbling and toothless and stinking of stale food and talking only of 1985 or some such time long before any of us was born. Pinky glared at him, but he was unmoved. There was an uncomfortable silence while everyone searched their souls, till Jay hesitantly offered to go along with Fred to return the umbrella. Arky's fingers were spread out and silent on the tabletop, and the girls looked crestfallen. Suddenly, Tara clapped her hands and came out with a crazy suggestion. I know what, let's throw him a party, she said. And just like that, it was on, despite Leo's evident disgust. Pinky said she'd bake him some cupcakes. Tara said she'd talk to her mum about some healthy cooked food. Fred and Jay offered to pitch in with a few magazines and board games. RK said he'd consult his mum. She might have some bright idea since she'd been there. Sentimental fools, swore Leo. How long are you going to provide him with cakes and comfort? But the next day, they were all standing outside Motabai Manor, Leo included, gaping up at the building and wondering what the heck they were getting themselves into. Fred moved first, swinging the umbrella and bounding up the three steps to the foyer, and the rest trooped in behind him, Leo bringing up the rear. It was an upmarket area and a good building, so money was evidently not one of Bob's problems. They rang the doorbell. Tara stood in front since she'd already met him and the rest waited politely while she and Fred explained they'd come to throw him a surprise party. He looked suspicious and hesitant at first and they belatedly realised how intimidating they must seem. Six of them, all young and strapping and enthusiastic, and he frail and a bit sunken into himself. So they offered their gifts and suggested they drop by some other time when it was more convenient. But Bob pulled himself together and insisted they come in. It was a long time since he'd had a party at home and they must excuse his hospitality if it was a bit rusty. But please, come in. Beers were offered, which made him very popular indeed. Fred ceremoniously returned the umbrella and everyone stepped forward with their gifts and Bob was embarrassed but obviously thrilled. The cupcakes were shared with everyone and some chocolate biscuits he brought out from his kitchen. And in a few minutes, a party really was on. Leo hung back and watched the proceedings with a critical eye. The rest of them were jabbering on about the latest cricket series and Bob got heatedly into that discussion. Politicians came in for their share of the stick, of course. The college profs got their ticks and crosses of approval and disdain, with Bob vowing that in his day, they'd been too damn tough 
and he was sure things were much easier now what with computers and things they didn't have back in the day that didn't go too well for him and he put up his hands in mock surrender at the full spirited attack the hour passed swiftly and rk insisted later admitting his mum had drilled him that they clean up their mess before they left they set to work and with six pairs of strong young hands they had everything ship shape in minutes probably even a bit shipper and shaper than it was when they came in they left noisily and cheerfully and as they clattered away down the stairs bob was left standing there with his hand on the door thinking how wonderful that had just been he was turning around to sit back down in his now hauntingly empty living room when the doorbell rang again he opened it sharply and peered out at a young man in the corridor i wonder do you think it might be okay if i dropped in again sometime i noticed that chess trophy on the side table and i'd appreciate a few pointers to sharpen my game would you be willing to help me with that he looked steadily into bob's eyes and a secret pact was entered into silently and instantly between the two men that it never be brought up who was really helping whom bob assured him he'd be willing and they shook hands then i'll be in touch see you soon and the young man turned on his heel calling out over his shoulder i'm leo by the way surya us took surya seriously he was a lightweight in the temple hierarchy even newcomers like myself considered ourselves superior he knew the chants yes and he knew the traditional way of doing things yes and what had to be done when what prayers what rituals when they were mandated yes to all of that but he was a misshapen old lump hobbled wizened and ugly forgive me but it's all true he really was all those things and despite his age he didn't seem to be held in any regard by the seniors in the temple so why would we juniors give him the time of day most ignored him some laughed at him and some outright taunted him i'd even wondered if he was deaf or mute too but he wasn't the muck that was thrown at him verbally i mean just seemed to slide off him and he went about his chores without a word or glance of reproach he was always the one sent on the tedious visits through the neighboring countryside perhaps they wanted his ugly visage out of the way or just dumped him with the vexatious jobs that no one else wanted i don't know but he'd often be seen with a small bundle of his personal belongings and a larger one of the temple's belongings 
limping down the road from the temple, wearing his battered rubber sandals. Weeks later, he'd come plodding back, and after the briefest of pauses to wash and a longer one to present his respects to the deity, he'd be seen waiting patiently to submit his accounts. Word had it that he never held back an extra penny, even if it was gifted to him personally by the supplicants. How he survived on the road was anybody's guess. But no one seemed to care enough to find out. He'd always have performed extra services on his sojourns and would give full details of those two never withholding what no one would otherwise have even known about. Scrupulously honest. We laughed that he turned in all the cash because he had no notion what to do with it. And there were many among us who were eager for an opportunity to show him, if only he'd give us the chance. I must confess, I joined the gaggle at first. No one had a good word to say for him, and he was always given the meanest tasks and treated with barely veiled impatience, if not outright impertinence. But nothing ever ruffled his feathers, if he could even be said to have had any feathers. We sniggered when we saw temple visitors bowing before him. They bowed to his age, we surmised, as they were probably unaware of how low in the pecking order he was. He received their offering with a simple nod of his head. But by and by it dawned on me that even regular visitors to the temple, who should surely have known better, also always bowed before him as they did to the head priest and to nobody else. In fact, as I began to keep an eye on the situation, based, I am ashamed to admit, on no nobler emotion than curiosity, I observed many going out of their way to approach him. He was always busy though, and after a quiet nod, would turn his attention back to his work. But there were many regulars who wouldn't leave the temple without visiting him. His placid acceptance of all blows had intrigued me and I'd been looking out for him. Otherwise, I'd never have noticed this inexplicable practice. He maintained a very low profile himself, always in the shadows. I kept my own counsel, but stayed a lot. I never saw anything much. He was always at his task and his silence and concentration did not encourage disturbance. Taking curiosity further, I approached him one day and asked if I may accompany him on his travels. He gazed at me in sweet surprise and then with a soft nod said it was okay with him if it was okay with the head priest. It took many requests before I received that second okay. But I am nothing if not stubborn. And after asking four times and being denied four times, I still requested again. And this time was granted permission, probably just to shut me up. My bundle of personal possessions was much larger than Surya's. And I wondered how basic his kit was. I'd thought mine pretty basic, Yet his was half the size. We set off and I could feel the eyes of many of the residents burning into my back 
as I followed in his stunted footsteps. It was a long time before it dawned on me, as I shifted my kit from one sweaty shoulder to the other, that I carried just the one, while he carried the much larger bundle of the puja utensils as well. When I shamefacedly offered to carry it, he shook his head, saying he was used to it. Late is still better than never though, and I insisted. It was heavy. I grunted as I shouldered it and looked in amazement at this puny chap. How could he possibly lug this weight around? He immediately offered to take it back, but of course, I couldn't permit that. Our pace slowed, now that I, half his age or less and infinitely better muscled, bowed under the unaccustomed burden. As we approached the first village, I saw a posse of men, women and children come hurtling down the road. I could see they were a happy lot, not an aggressive one. Perhaps they were off to a wedding. I had my socks knocked right off when I realized it was a welcome committee for Surya. Children threw themselves around his spindly legs, threatening to knock him over. Women and men bent to touch his dust-laden feet and he dispensed his blessings and his smiles freely. Smiles? I'd never seen him smile before. I was thunderstruck, to put it mildly. I was given a few odd looks because they'd obviously never seen anyone with him before. But they accepted me generously enough. He was escorted to the village and given a comfortable seat. For my part, I was just relieved to put down that heavy bundle. We were treated as honoured guests, with me receiving some of his reflected glory. In the three days we were there, he performed many simple rituals for the residents. I assisted him in all his practices and took over all the heavy lifting and cleaning. It was backbreaking. I just couldn't understand how this broken little man had been doing all this himself. Only my pride prevented me from throwing in the towel. If he could do it, I had to be able to do it. But it wrung me out and I slept the sleep of the dead every night. While all this physical stuff was going on, my brain was trying to wrap itself around what I was experiencing. He was subdued, quiet, humble, low profile. But the people clamoured for his attention and poured out their affection for him. He accepted it with the simplest humility. He gave guidance, offered solutions for problems he could have no possible personal experience of. As a celibate priest who'd lived decades without any family except the temple fraternity, he resolved disputes because both sides respected him highly and accepted his hesitantly offered suggestions as law. He blessed the children and listened to the aged. I could only follow him and watch and listen. I declined to give my own opinion, often at variance with his, and deferred to his age and seniority. Good move, I understood only later, because I learnt more in those three days than in the previous six months at the temple. At the end of our stay, I hefted the heavy bundle onto my shoulder again, stemmed his offer by a single glance 
and followed doggedly behind him down the dusty road. The same scene was repeated in village after village. And in that 15 days of travel, my respect for the man went from zero to a hundred. They revered him. They adored him. They were honored to have him in their midst. And as I was seen as his acolyte, helping and serving him, I came in for a good bit of respect myself. You can readily comprehend that it started off embarrassing me. But soon, it caused me to burn with shame. My motives in accompanying him had been far from lofty. I'd been curious. I'd thought him a small person and ugly. And the respect they offered me made me feel small and ugly myself. It took me some time to realize that the Surya I saw on the road wasn't any different from the Surya I'd been seeing in the temple. He was just as humble, diligent, earnest, methodical. The difference was in how he was treated by others. Here he was admired and respected. At the temple he was scorned and disregarded. But he accepted both with the same equanimity. He spoke much more here because people approached him and required his help. But when they didn't, he was as silent and still as I'd always known him to be. For me, it was a growing up of sorts. I'd been a callow adolescent, but those 15 days made me a man. I accompanied him on every trip after that. And while I learned dreams, I also learned I could never hope to emulate him. So I made my decision and I've stayed with it. For the next six years, as he got older and more wizened and tougher on one level, but more fragile on another, I was his constant companion. Not just on the road, but even at the temple. Many couldn't understand my behavior. They'd thought I was destined for better things. I was summoned and questioned multiple times, but insisted that it was my personal preference and refused to elaborate further. Surya accepted my services with unspoken humility. But he came to lean on me more and more. Until one day, even that support was inadequate. And he continued his onward journey, leaving me suddenly and completely bereft. As word of his departure spread, the mourners started arriving. No one had expected the endless line of tearful villagers. For four days and nights they came, men, women and children, and wept at his side, touched his feet respectfully, sought and blessed me. For four days and nights, I sat beside him or slept fitfully when wrung to exhaustion. I couldn't make myself leave his side. On the fifth day, even his mortal remains were gone and nothing held me back in the temple. I'd long realized I wasn't priestly material, not the kind of priest I'd want to be if I could at any rate, the kind I'd seen so close at hand. And so, with Surya gone, I packed my small belongings and I left. <laughs> 